0: Good morning, everyone. As Mike uh, just prayed a moment ago, we are in the final week of a four-week sermon series in the Book of Ruth. We've entitled Harvest of Hope, and uh, I'm glad you could be here. Please open up your Bibles to the Book of Ruth. We'll get started here. And I want to introduce today's theme uh, by sharing with you that for a good deal of my life, I've thoroughly enjoyed going on long, all-day hikes. Uh, I still do, but not nearly as much as I used to uh, many years ago. But uh, one of my favorite trails is the Appalachian Trail. And uh, if you've ever been on a hike on the Appalachian Trail, you know it stretches, I think, across 14 states. And it's a very uh, diverse kind of trail. It can be very, very challenging. And typically, there are lots of elevation changes along the way. So one minute you'll be up, one minute you'll be down, And uh, those uh, hills can be pretty steep. Along with these frequent elevation changes, uh, there are long stretches. Uh, As you can see this picture of a place in New Jersey, uh, part of the Appalachian Trail, there are long stretches of loose rocks like that that can make stepping a little treacherous and slippery. And so injuries from overexertion and slips are very, very common on this trail. And oh, did I, I happen to mention that you may encounter a snake or a bear or some other wild creature along the way. And, and, and these things being noted, uh, I was reminded a few weeks back when we took a trip from here in Northern Virginia back to uh, our, the Ark Encounter in Williamstown, Kentucky that, uh, that conquering the Appalachian Mountains isn't just achieved by lacing up your hiking boots. Crossing over the Appalachian Mountains in the State Road 55 in West Virginia, if you ever been there, uh, it was obviously created to showcase and to preserve the scenic landscapes, and uh, as a result, I was treated to about 20 miles of nail-biting climbs and drops and pin, uh, hairpin turns and, and and a great number of fluctuations in speed. It seemed like you were crawling at other times. You could barely get around those curves. There were also the added concerns of rocks and potential boulders falling onto the road and bikes uh, and uh, pedestrians. and wild animals being in the road and their blind curves, the fog that day was so thick you couldn't see right in front of you, incredibly narrow lanes, big trucks coming in the other direction, Uh, no guardrails hardly at all, steep cliffs. You get my picture here, really kind of scary, nail-biting 20 miles there. And I'm presenting all these uh, these observations about hiking or driving through the Appalachian uh, Mountains, these pathways or these roads, because as we come to the end today of our series, in the book of Ruth, I think a question that we should all be asking is, what is the primary lesson of this uh, this book? That's what I'm seeking to answer today. What is the primary lesson of this book? And I, I love what John Piper suggests for the main lesson when he writes this. The life of the godly, now think about this, the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but we do get there. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but we do, in fact, get there. And simply stated, as we think about our lives as believers and followers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not like traveling over a smooth, uh, straight interstate. It's more like traveling on Route 55 or State Road 55 in the the West uh, Virginia Mountains here. Expounding a little bit more on that thought, that theme, here is what... He wrote, Dr. Uh, Piper wrote about the book of Ruth. He goes on to say this, when it comes to the life of the godly, there are rocks, lies, and precipices, and dark storms and bears, and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backwards in order to go forward. And all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say the best is yet to come. And at the bottom of the right corner uh, is written with an unmistakable hand, the words, as I live, says the Lord. The book of Ruth, he concludes, is one of those signs for believers who are walking down this crooked and non-straight path to read from time to time for encouragement. It's with these opening thoughts in mind, I would love to have you look with me here at the book of Ruth. And I want to walk through this book and show you how this theme is so pronounced in the book. Some of you will recall that the, this true historical account of Ruth took place during the period of the Judges, which was a dismal time of disobedience and worshiping other gods for Israel, rebellion. Uh, the narrative also began not in Judah or in Israel, but in Moab, and, they, and the reason it began in Moab is because we have an Israeli family, uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech, and their two sons, Mahon and Chilion. Uh, who went there during a a famine, to escape a a famine in Judah. And then just one thing after another happens, doesn't it? In Moab, Naomi's husband dies. Sometime afterwards, Ruth's sons marry Moabite women, namely Ruth and Orpah. And then 10 years later, uh, having no children and having no heirs to carry on the name Um, the the boys die leaving these three widows hopeless and helpless and impoverished all alone in a in a foreign country and it's in the depth of that despair that I began to see in the hopelessness there in Ruth chapter 1 verse 6 a little spark that's your first point in our notes here a spark of hope is revealed that's when you see Uh, we discover that uh, God has visited Judah. He sent rain. He's ended the famine in Bethlehem. And so Naomi decided to return home to Bethlehem. And amazingly, by the grace of God, one of the things we've seen in this book, that in spite of this grim future that she faced, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, lovingly and with great and sacrificial kindness and loyalty, took Naomi by the hand, and chose to leave everything behind in moab and go to israel with her mother-in-law but even with the famine being over with ruth's tenacious loyalty being there to accompany uh naomi chapter one and verse 21 with no and ends there with with naomi as she enters into bethlehem uh, uh, pronouncing this bitter protest that goes something like this to all the people who greeted her. Verse 21, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And I want to remind you, as we see the theme in this book, that the life of the godly person is not a straight line, okay? I, you're going to hear that a lot, to glory, but we do get there, okay? And so as we read on in chapter 2, we find that in spite of Naomi's despair, god continues to graciously act towards her and eventually we see an anticipation of hope that is expressed in bethlehem although uh, some would argue that it's a total coincidence i find it hard to believe uh it's very clear to me that god sovereignly directs ruth's footsteps to the field of boaz to glean wheat or harvest there and um, deeply moved by all that ruth has done for naomi And recognizing her outstanding character, even though Ruth was a Moabite, a Gentile, and a complete stranger to Boaz, we see that he protected her and he provided for her far beyond what the law required, okay? And when Naomi sees, when she gets home with all this goods that she's gleaned and that Boaz has provided, when Naomi sees that Ruth comes back and realizes that as a close relative, uh, that he's a close relative to Elimelech and that he could be her kinsman redeemer. In chapter two, verse 20, with hope clearly mounting, notice what Naomi declares, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I wanna stop here because I don't wanna assume that everybody knows what a kinsman redeemer is. According to the Old Testament law, at this time in Jewish history, we see the responsibility of a kinsman-redeemer included two major things. First on the list is delivering or rescuing or redeeming a relative who was in trouble, who was in danger, or who was in need. We see a delivering, a redeeming, or a rescue. The second thing, as as Izzy uh, pointed out last week, it also involved marrying that childless widow and raising up an heir to uh, bring her husband's name, the dead husband's name, uh, into the furtherance here. And therefore, a kinsman redeemer, in order to qualify, required three things. And we'll talk about how important these things are in just a minute. But the redeemer must be close kin. That's the first requirement. The second thing we see is that a redeemer must be willing, he must be willing to redeem And third, not only must he be willing, that redeemer must be able to pay the required price of redemption. And recognizing that Boaz had uh, met all three of these qualifications, um, I'm telling you, Naomi was filled with excitement and determination to find that security for Ruth. And uh, she slips here from depressed mode into matchmaker, matchmaker, you know, make me a match. I'm not gonna go into fiddler on the roof here. But you see this change in her personality. And consequently, chapter 2 closes with this brimming and exciting hope beginning to rise, but also with this great suspense and uncertainty about how all these things are going to work out. Let me remind you again, and, and, and I want you to see this as we're walking through this book, that the life of the godly person is not a straight line to glory, but we do, in fact, get there. And we'll see that so pronounced in this story. Well, knowing that the barley harvest was quickly coming to a close and realizing that the opportunity for her daughter-in-law to have any contact with Boaz, it was growing limited now, we discover the third point in chapter three, a plan for requesting hope is proposed. Naomi uh, proposes a plan to root. And Izzy explained a whole lot in greater detail than I'm going to do of that plan. But essentially, Naomi instructs Ruth to go quietly and unnoticed to the threshing floor where Boaz was sleeping at night. And there, without drawing any attention to herself, she was to uncover his feet, lie down there at his feet, and wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. And although, as, as was pointed out last week, this plan sounds very strange and very foreign to us, Ruth is basically proposing marriage to Boaz and requesting in a very bold way for her for him to serve as her kinsman redeemer and giving no hint whatsoever to Ruth that he was embarrassed by this action or that he found anything that she did immoral um, Boaz humbly and graciously agrees to Ruth's request in fact Boaz immediately recognized Ruth's uh, pure and honest intentions, even commending her, as we see in Scripture, for her loyalty and her kindness. And I love, uh, she was a woman of excellence, he points out here. But just when you think everything, as we see in this book, is coming together beautifully here, working out perfectly, Boaz introduces yet another twist, another turn, another drop here, a complication in the story that needs to be unraveled. Boaz, you see, was not the nearest kinsman redeemer. And while there is no doubt in my mind what, uh, how Boaz wanted this matter to work out, because he was a man of impeccable uh, honesty, he would not proceed without following the law of Moses and giving that unnamed kinsman redeemer the lawful opportunity to serve as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And so in chapter three, it ends with suspense on the potential for another setback. How would all work out? Um, To find out, look now with me at chapter 4 of Ruth. This is where you want to really dig in. And notice that Boaz makes good on his promise and a commitment, a commitment of hope is obtained. Follow along as I read the first few verses of chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took 10 men for witnesses here of the elders of the city and said, hey, sit down here. So they sat down. So the this, this set is uh, all placed here, established. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, hey, buy it in the presence of those sitting here in the presence of the elders of my people." if you will redeem it redeem it but if you will not tell me that i may know for i there is no one beside you to redeem it and i come after you and notice how he responds and he said i will redeem it your kinsman said i want this land Again, we have this other setback, this curve, this twist, this turn in the narrative. However, just about the time we're about to say, oh, no, it's falling apart, right? We find that according to verse 5, using a carefully well-planned strategy, Boaz said to this nearer kinsman, look at verse 5, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance." When the kinsman redeemer heard the stipulation according to verse 6, to our great relief uh, in the story here, uh, he said this, I cannot redeem her for, my, it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot, and I would add, won't redeem it here. He's obviously been taken back here. With permission now obtained, Boaz works very quickly to legalize and complete the matter and be able to marry Ruth. And interestingly, the legal transaction here is not taken by signing a piece of paper, but rather a dramatic uh, symbolic act that others might see and witness. They take off their sandal and and pass it on. Some say that was giving him the right to walk on that land as if it was his. I don't know. I couldn't find anything on that. But according to verses 11 and 12, all the people who were at the gate then said, the elders said, we are witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who they together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in epitaph, and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And so once again, you know, with all these twists and turns, we see that God uh, sovereignly works through another obstacle in Ruth and Naomi's path, and Boaz now legally marries Ruth. Now, before moving on from this biblical narrative, I feel it's so important to to show you for a moment that Boaz's redemption of Ruth is a beautiful illustration of Christ's redemption of us. And I can never hear this enough, and I wanna share it with you today. First. I want you to remember that Jesus took on flesh so that he could be kin to us. Philippians 2, right, 6 through 8, tells us this, this about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even the death of Cross. And by becoming man, Jesus uh, was God in the flesh. Jesus did something for sinful people like you and I who we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus, you see, was able to purchase our redemption and provide forgiveness for our sin and enable a way for us to have a relationship as sinful, forgiven people with a holy and righteous God possible. Ephesians seven tells us this, this, in him, in Christ, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So Jesus became a man, he's kin, right? God-man. Second, Jesus was a willing redeemer. And the best way I can demonstrate is to share with you the words of Jesus in John 10:14 and 15. Here's what Jesus himself said. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know God. The Father, and listen, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jumping down to verse 18, no one takes that life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up, this charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus Jesus was willing to, to be our kinsman redeemer. Third, he was able, Jesus was able to pay the required price. And I can't think of a better passage then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it tells us, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. I want you to see here that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed with something so valuable so valuable that it will hold its value long after this world's economies are forgotten. We are redeemed with the precious and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then to clearly demonstrate that he had indeed conquered sin and death, he rose from the grave and now ascended, He ascends on high where he continues to bring all who will trust in him into eternity with him. And the beautiful thing, and this is something that really blesses me as someone who struggled a lot when I was a kid with my salvation security, the beautiful thing is we never have to worry, brothers and sisters, about having to be redeemed again. Jesus paid the price of redemption once for all. Say that. Jesus paid my redemption once for all. Jesus paid my redemption once for all. And thus. Thus, our security in this life and our hope for eternity depends not on, thank God, our feeble efforts and abilities, but solely on the finished redemptive work of Christ, our Savior, on the cross. You know, I'll never forget a testimony that I heard in seminary from one of our speakers there how he became a Christian. Businessman, Washington, D.C., every day rode the Metro spot, uh, station And one day as he was entering the metro uh, station, he he saw a blind street evangelist preaching the gospel. And he was uh, reading aloud from a Braille Bible that he had, Acts chapter 4. And although he was in a hurry, he said, I I decided to join the crowd and listen to what he had said. And at that very moment, that sightless man lost his place. And he kept repeating over and over again the last three words he had just read in Acts 4.12. No other name no other name no other name and many in the crowd he said smiled some laughed or chuckled at him but it deeply touched and convicted my heart he had heard these verses he had heard he had heard these words many times before but that morning he said something stuck in my heart like it never did before and so after a whole day of work as he was driving and uh, riding home on the metro from work that day, he surrendered uh, his heart to the Holy Spirit's leading and he placed his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. You know, one of the things he shared is like many church people for years, I have been trying to save myself by my own works and by my own abilities. But that day, he said, I finally, it finally clicked in my heart that it was faith alone in Christ alone that could save me. And thus, a blind man's witness given in a stumbling manner was the very thing God used for this seeking soul to put his trust in Jesus. What about you today? Look carefully at the words that touched this man's heart, Acts 4.12. Can we read them out loud? There is salvation and no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I wonder this morning, can you say with confidence that I have experienced the full and redeeming love and forgiveness of Christ, our beloved kinsman redeemer? Not, what are you waiting for? As we look back at our narrative, there is still one more potential cloud overhead. For the story to be fully completed, a son or an heir needed to be born. That may sound easy, but it was a rather difficult problem. I want to remind you that Boaz was probably a much older man. And let me also remind you that according to chapter 1, verse 4, that Ruth had been barren in Moab for the full entire 10 years of marriage to Milan. And so even now, we see suspense. The suspense is not over, okay? Please notice, however, how quickly and how marvelously that the tension or the problem was resolved. Verse 13 we see a harvest of hope. My final point, a harvest of hope is experienced. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So once again, we see how God is sovereignly working through yet another potential obstacle in Ruth and Boaz's path. God was orchestrating in a wondrous plan here. Boaz takes Ruth, as his wife, gives her an heir and now provides for both Ruth and Naomi. And because of her courage, and and this is an incredible linking here, of her courage and her loyalty and her sacrificial love and obedience for Naomi and and her humility towards Boaz, we see that Ruth, once an an outsider and an alien to God, became not only part of Israel's culture but a genuine servant, Worship of Israel's living God. God was at work. You might ask, well, what about Naomi? What becomes of her? And we need to see that by looking here at verses 14 and 15, continuing on here in chapter 4. Then the woman said, the women said to Naomi, "'Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age.'" For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I found it interesting as I got to this point, and we kind of wrestled through this in our community group this past week, that um, the focus here in this last section of the book is not, it's not on Ruth, it's not on Boaz, it's, it's rather focused on Naomi and this child. We kind of wrestled, well, why? Well, as I wrestled through it this week, I was reminded that the story began with Naomi's loss, and, and now it ends with Naomi's gain. It began with death, and now it ends with life and this new birth or this new child. And and, and so I came to the conclusion, I believe that the author here is very purposely writing this beautiful conclusion to contrast the book's introduction and Naomi's conclusion back in chapter one, verse 21, where she came in and said, I I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. As Izzy pointed out last week, something that really touched me as I went back and and I reviewed, I know we went through and walked back a little bit, but something that caught my attention as I was walking through this book here is that with the exception of God bringing rain and ending the famine here in this book, nowhere in this book is there a mention that God is specifically doing anything? And yet, as you read this book, details and chapters and words, in every, every section of this book, you can't help but see that God is at work. When, for example, Naomi lost everything, God provided Ruth to cling by her side. When Ruth and Naomi had nothing, God happened to have, you know, Ruth gleaning at Boaz's field. When Boaz did not offer to become her kinsman redeemer, Naomi, whose eyes of faith had been opened, devised a plan for Ruth, right? And Boaz, because he was a man of God and understood that it was his place, he became a willing kinsman redeemer. And when Boaz, uh, he uses this risky strategy to fulfill what he's promised to Ruth, God uses that very strategy to accomplish redemptive purposes for Ruth and Naomi in this book. I I love to quote that uh, Izzy used last week when he quoted Mark Deaver of uh, Capital Baptist Church when he said, in Ruth's conclusion here, God is exonerated, I would say completely exonerated, from the charges Naomi leveled against him in bitterness. He was always, don't miss that, was always working in faithfulness for good of his own, even if he was working quietly and invisible in Naomi's eyes. At this point, I kind of said, I I wonder if Naomi would have chosen to walk down the path that God laid out for her. And and I I truly doubt a flesh would have been willing to do that. But but the lesson that I see learned from both Ruth and Naomi's life experiences here, folks, is no matter how steep or how twisted or how stormy the road or the path that we are walking, God is always at work. He will bring us to the end for his glory and for our eventual good. Now, admittedly, and I've had this tested in major ways this week in my own heart as a pastor, seeing in advance how God will work evil or hurt for our benefit, it's very difficult sometimes, if not impossible. Our limited human perspective doesn't allow us to grasp so often God's greater plan. Even so, I would submit to you today that if our faith is rooted in the biblical principles that are so clearly taught in this book that says God is sovereign and that he is good and he is kind, what we can be sure of is that nothing for believers, followers of Christ, happens by accident or coincidence. God, you see, has a purpose for even the most painful experiences in our lives. Moreover, he has promised in Romans 8, 28, that calls all things to work for good together for those who love him. I quoted a couple weeks ago one of my favorite pastors, Charles Spurgeon, and it seems so appropriate again as we bring this uh, point to a close here, where he writes, "'God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken.'" And when, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot trace his hand, we have got to trust his heart. Now, if the story of Ruth just ended in a little Judean village and an old grandmother hugging her new grandson, that would be a hallmark kind of story, I think. But it doesn't end there. Look at verses 16 and 17 then naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to naomi they named him obed he was the father of jesse the father of david observe carefully please that obed was to become the father of jesse and jesse was to become the father of david and now all of a sudden with that one change, and you know that twist and that turn. We we realize that all along something far greater than has been felt or seen in the characters of the story is at work here in this narrative here. Something far greater than they could see. Something clearly that they not even could feel or imagine at the time. God, you see, was not simply plotting for a temporary blessing here for a few Jews in Bethlehem. God was preparing the way for the coming of one of the greatest kings Israel ever experienced, King David. And many centuries later, mind-blowing here, Ruth and Boaz also became ancestors of Messiah Jesus Christ himself, who would one day, who would one day not simply rule over Israel but rule over the whole world, even as he rules over our hearts today. Thus in the book of Ruth, There is a harvest of hope. I hope you can see it as we close today. It goes far beyond this cute little baby and a happy grandmother, or even for this tiny nation of Israel. The book of Ruth, you see, ultimately recounts how God intervened to preserve Naomi's line to ensure that the mission to rescue the world through Messiah stayed on course. And here's the thing. I see. Although Naomi and Ruth didn't know what God had planned and purposed through their path and their pain, we as the readers of this book get a glimpse of both the path they were heading on and how the path ends. And that's where our harvest of hope comes from today. Like Ruth and Naomi, of course, we don't always see all the ins and outs of how God might use our heartache, or our devastations, or our poverty, or even our brokenness. But because we do have a glimpse of the end of this story, we know that even if we can't see it, even if we can't feel it, God is working. God is working it out for our good. We too can know our path, and even our pain ends with a harvest. Oh, how? How is that possible? Mike prayed earlier because of Jesus. Jesus, you see, stepped out of a grave alive. The body that was once cold and lifeless stepped out of the tomb, his feet hitting the dirt, his lungs filling with air, the blood flowing once again through his veins. Jesus demonstrated that death could not hold him, that our sin could not defeat him. And having experienced uh, a conquering over sin and death, having redeemed all of us and all things under the curse. He brings with him this promise, that one day, brothers and sisters in Christ, every tear will be wiped away, every longing will be filled, every brokenness will be mended, every wrong will be righted, all things will be made new in heaven and on earth. It is. It is. It, it will literally be a harvest of hope. That, dear friends, is the unshakable truth about life for a woman or man who are following Christ in obedience and faith. So when we're walking through a path of pain, may I encourage you to take a peek at the end of the story. Look to the risen Christ. Know the best is yet to come. That even in the darkest of dark, light shines. Resurrection means everything is going to be okay. In conclusion, thus, the primary purpose of the book of Ruth, as I see it, is to point us to Jesus. He is our Redeemer. He is our ultimate harvest of hope. And here's the thing. The very same God, who sovereignly intervened in this narrative to ensure that the mission and rescue of the world stayed on course, promises that although... The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. We will get there. The best, brothers and sisters, in Christ is yet to come. Such a big message for a little story. Don't you agree? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the wonderful way that you worked in the life of Naomi and Ruth, In this uh, beautiful story, we are so amazed. We are so humbled at your kindness, your grace, the power of your sovereign authority. Father, we pray that you would help us not to stray from your path of peace peace by, by relying on our own abilities, but that we would trust in you in all things. Father, help us to live our life in active dependence on you alone. We pray that you might use our life, you might use our church to forward your plans and purposes in whatever way you choose. We love you and we trust you. May each and every day be lived out to your honor and to your glory as we pray this now in Jesus' name.